With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is sponsored by Saks Off Fifth, where you get Saks style for less. I'm talking up to 70% off of some of my favorite brands like Ghani, Stodd, and Stuart Weitzman. At Saks Off Fifth, you'll shop the latest fall fashion and designer discounts across clothing, shoes, handbags, beauty, and more for both women and men. Plus, they have new styles arriving every day. Experience the thrill of an amazing designer find at SaksOffFifth.com or at a store near you. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who, What, Where. And this is Second Life, a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today on the show, I'm speaking with the founder and creative director of Tibby, Amy Smilovic. Founded back in 1997 when Amy was living in Hong Kong, it didn't take long for the bright colors and playful prints of Tibby to catch on in a big way, landing them in major retailers like Nordstrom, Saks, and Neiman Marcus, and cementing the ready-to-wear brand as a certified hit within the fashion industry. But Amy didn't just build the brand from the ground up once, she actually did it twice. In 2010, when she no longer felt connected to the initial aesthetic that Tibby had become so well known for, Amy made the bold decision to redesign and revamp the entire brand, scratching essentially everything other than the name. With a newfound focus on what Amy refers to as creative pragmatism in mindset and style, she successfully pulled off a 180 brand pivot. Today, Tibby is bigger than ever, competing in the advanced designer arena at retailers like Intermix and Net-A-Porter, in addition to their own e-commerce business. But since this is Second Life, you may be wondering about Amy's path prior to fashion industry genius. Amy's career actually began in advertising at Ogilvy before moving on to marketing on the brand side at American Express. It is quite the journey, and I can't wait for you to hear all about it. Now on Second Life... It's Amy Smilovic. So, Amy, we like to start at the beginning on this podcast. So, what did you study in school? And more importantly, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I always loved business and I wanted my own business. And I didn't know what that was, but I was always starting businesses, you know, whether it was a line selling crocheted scarves or picking things out of a dumpster and polishing them up and selling them on the side of the street. Like I was always starting a company. I didn't just babysit. I had a babysitting company and I had tons of different jobs growing up too. I mean, just always every summer I was always waitressing or working at a pharmacy or at a clothing store. 
or all at once. So I was always just really, really busy that way. And I grew up in a family of artists, lawyers, and psychologists, and teachers, and no one was in business except for a great aunt. And I just loved business, but I also loved art, and I loved psychology. And so mm-hmm. when I was at the University of Georgia, I really didn't know what I wanted to do because I grew up on an island, and I didn't really see a lot of careers there that matched up with what I would want to do. You know, everyone was either a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher on the <laughs> island. And so I remember I saw a movie called Nothing in Common with Tom Hanks, and he was an ad agency executive at Leo Burnett in Chicago in the movie. And <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is art. It's psychology. It's business. It's everything in one. And I'm like, I never thought about how commercials were made. And I literally, the next day went and found out that University of Georgia actually had an actual degree in advertising. You could have a minor in business and art. And I just felt like I'd hit the jackpot. And so, you know, finally, I had a real purpose for once. That is all kinds of exciting. I mean, who would have thought that Tom Hanks would be the impetus for your early career? That is a story I've never heard before. (laughs) So thank you for that. So after school, you moved to New York and pursued a career in advertising. So what was that transition like? I went to New York as a 21-year-old, and I found it chaotic and overwhelming and amazing all at the same time. I'm wondering what your experience was like. Well, the first step actually was at Ogilvy Advertising in Atlanta. So that's where I was for the first three years out of school, but Mm -hmm. then I would travel to New York to visit my client, American Express, and I loved it. I loved working at Ogilvy so much. The people were amazing. And I was really excited to have gotten this internship. And I remember the HR person told me that the reason why I got the position was because I'd been working since age 10 and that that was one of the things that they really look for when they're bringing someone in the door. And I know that so much now from running Tibby now for 25 years, you know, that whole work (laughs) ethic is really what gets you in the door and it keeps you there for, you know, a couple years. And working in advertising, uh, tell people, if you can have a degree that really matches up with what you are wanting to do, that can really be a home run. Because what happened is that I went into this internship at Ogilvy and I was up against a lot of other good interns who were from Dartmouth and Brown and Duke and Vanderbilt and everything. And the thing was, is they all had degrees in English lit or whatever. And I had this advertising degree. So number one, I knew what CPMs and GRPs and all that stuff, you know, all the terminology, I knew the (laughs) vocabulary. And I also was crazy about clothing. So, you know, I just spent a ton on suits before I joined. And I remember everyone else was in their college clothes and they were like, you're a jerk. Why are you wearing a suit? And I was like, because I can. And I always dreamt I would. But then when they would have a client come in, they weren't going to bring in the intern that was wearing like the tiered peasant skirt. They would bring me into the meetings. And then I knew the vocabulary. So that really helped out with getting the full-time, you know, real position as an account executive. So it's obviously a big corporation. It's a very traditional job in some ways. What were the pieces that were the most fun? And what were the aspects of that first job that you didn't love? You know, I I can't think of anything that I didn't love. 
I really loved it. I mean, it was a group of smart people. And what I really appreciated was having a boss who was so direct and he did not mince words. And I remember the first time he called me in for a meeting, I remember I just walked in. I was like, hey, you know, I didn't have any pen, any paper. He was like, get out of here. Come back. You know, he's like, I didn't call you in to talk to you about what you did last week. And like, this is a meeting. Not a social call. Yeah. And he was like, don't walk into my office for a meeting unprepared. He was so direct about that. And I, so I never did that again. And at Ogilvy, they were really critical thinkers. You know, it was really important to be able to think about things from all angles. And I remember one time I came in, I just found out that a boyfriend had cheated on me. And I told him, I'm like, you know, men are pigs. All men are pigs. And he was like, so I'm a pig. Your dad's a pig. And he's like, I'm not a pig. And your dad's probably not a pig. And don't generalize. You know, it's bad in life to generalize. And it's bad in business. And he was right. If you make generalizations like that, you're going to miss out on so much in business. You really, really are. And so learning the right way to think and having people kind of stop you in your tracks and question the things that you say is really, really invaluable. And I know it for us employees here, it's kind of the make or break thing for them because either they can really embrace it or they can't at all, you know. That makes sense. So what was your day-to-day like at that point in time? You said you were working with Amex, right? I was working with Amex and another company called Waste Management, Inc., WMI, and they're based out of Chicago, and they had bought a pest control company in the Southeast. So literally, as an account executive, I had to go and research the different areas of the companies that we were representing so that I could then brief the creative team to come up with the right creative. And so for this one, I had to go to Tampa and I had to spray bugs at the Women's State Penitentiary. Oh, my goodness. And I sprayed bugs. And, you know, that's the stuff that you do. You like get dirty and you have to do it and learn. So it was that. It was listening to clients. You know, and then it was an ad agency. There was a lot of playing around, too. It was really, really great. So what made you decide that it was time to move on and go to your next job? Well, When I started working with American Express, I really got into the whole psychology of the credit card. Why did some people use gold versus platinum? Why do cards matter? Like, shouldn't it just be plastic? And so I really, really got into it. And I worked really hard on that account. I did a good job. And then one day my client called and said that she wanted me to come join the corporate side. And I remember I went to my boss, Andy, at the time, and I was three years in at Ogilvy and I was just crying and I was like, I don't want to leave Ogilvy, but this is amazing. And I remember he was like, how much are you going to be making? And when I told him, he was like, Amy, I've been here for 10 years and you're going to be making more than I am. He's like, go now. Like, wow. Get out, go to New York, see the world and don't miss this opportunity. And I remember when I left my creative director, he was like, oh my God, you're going to a place where there's just going to be some guy in a cubicle who every day when you walks by, he goes, working hard or hardly working. He's like, that's (laughs) going to be as funny as it gets. But when I got to Amex, the group I joined was a new division in the company that was run by this extremely cool guy named Jim Berrien, who had come from the publishing world. He was at the magazine side and He was super, super cool, and it was a new division of the company, and it was all focused on 
signing on brand new industries that had never thought to take American Express. It was a whole new initiative that Amex was really embarking on that was about more inclusivity at the class level. It was bringing on a revolving card product and it was making sure the card was accepted at Walmart and Mm. at the grocery stores and, you know, places that real people of all income levels really just need functionality. And so I was part of that team and it was really phenomenal from day one. And again, I worked for very direct people who I remember one of my first meetings, I asked my boss, Amy, I said, you know, what's an ROI? And she was like, you need to go get some books on accounting and on reading 10Ks. She's like, you need to get up to speed ASAP. And she was right. Like people didn't like just explain, you know, that ROI was return on investment. They were like, you need to go do some learning. Um, And that was great advice. And again, very direct and helpful. So it it was a great place to work. So we've had a lot of folks on this podcast talk about the difference between working for a single brand or company versus an agency where you're, you know, working on lots of different accounts. How did that feel for you from a culture standpoint, from an environment standpoint? Did you notice great differences? Did you like it? I mean, yeah, there's a huge difference because you really went to a client mentality versus a service mentality, you know? Because in advertising, the process is so complicated. Um, You're not just trying to come up with the best creative strategy, but you're also working much harder on how you're going to actually sell that strategy into the client and make them believe in what you believe in. And I mean, I really love that challenge. And the reality is, is that skill set is what I tap into the most every day at Tibby is, you know, people think that it's really just about coming up with the great idea. But if you can't really sell your vision in, even as the head of the company, then it's not worth anything. So, you know, advertising really teaches you to not assume that your way is the way you assume already that you're in a negative position that you have to actually convince people of what it is that you are doing and why. And so that was really helpful learning that at Ogilvy. And then I loved at Amex being the client and not having to do that. (laughs) <laughs> the biggest thing at Ogilvy was a client would tell you something, you really had to have something in by Friday. And I remember getting it into FedEx, getting it in their hands, only to find out that they were on vacation. And they were like, no worries, we'll just get to it when we get back. And I'm like, no worries, like I fucking broke my neck to get it Killed myself and, for this. Yes. And I remember at Amex, I was constantly walking around going, you guys, seriously, like when you tell people to do it, they do it. So don't tell them to do it unless you're sure about when you need it. A little empathy for the other side. Exactly. But it was... <laughs> Amazing and different on both sides. So how did the scope of your work change at Amex while you were there? I think the biggest change was, you know, what I was saying, they really had that focus on these new divisions, these new revolved products and everything. And so when I joined Amex, people couldn't believe that Amex was going after gas stations or like, you know, Boston Market and companies like that. There were startups at the time. And it was really an unbelievable learning experience to go and meet with these entrepreneurs who were coming up with these big box concepts and chain concepts that really weren't around before. Like even the idea of Boston market, which was like slow, fast food that didn't exist prior, but it was 
such an unbelievable experience for me to get to go work with these entrepreneurs. And I had to come up with these very in-depth financial propositions for them about why they should be accepting American Express. And I got to learn so much about how these companies are run and not just what an ROI is in theory, but more in practicality. And so it was an exciting time where I just, without knowing it, was really collecting a lot of information that I would ultimately use to start my own company. I think that's the most amazing part about careers. It's like you might not know what you're learning something for, only to have it show up 10 years down the line in a completely different application. It's just such a optimistic and encouraging thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, way too many people, I think, view what they're doing at any given time as a placeholder until they actually start doing what they want to do. And I tell designers, too, up and coming designers, like if you're waitressing, use this constantly as like a Petri dish to examine what people are doing and their behavior and what makes them tip you higher and all of that stuff. You should be constantly treating these as giant focus groups and not as like, ugh. I just have to earn some money so that ultimately one day I'll have my own job. This is your life. Like you're actually living it and you might as well learn from it. That is a fact. So at Amex, were you managing people? Um, I had one direct report at Amex. You know, that was interesting when you're learning how to manage someone for the first time. And especially Amex was very intense about teaching people how to be good managers. And they had these things called upward feedback and sideways feedback where you were constantly getting feedback from whoever reported to you and you were getting feedback from your colleagues as well. And I remember the really harsh feedback that I got from my direct report was that I would get so intense about things that they didn't feel like they could challenge me or ask a question. And I remember this is where my boss really helped unpack that for me because she knew that I really get excited and that's why they hired me. You know, she knew how passionate I was, but she also knew that if the minute someone offered a compelling alternative or a reason why it wouldn't work, that I could shift that passion just as quickly to something else, as long as I really believed in it. And so, you know, she really helped me learn how to not temper my passion, but rather to, you know, communicate that to who I'm working with so that they know that they can give me feedback. I need to pause and give them time to really respond and treat what they say with, you know, a lot of respect. And, you know, doing that now as an owner of company takes on a whole different level because there's one thing to be passionate and have people scared to give feedback. And then there's another thing to be passionate and be the owner of the company and people be scared then on multiple levels to not give feedback. And so I'm really constantly pushing people to be direct and speak with me in an open way, because if I don't, you know, I might as well just be hiring myself and working, you know, it's a committee of one and that's no good. Well, right, because it's not actually a great, well-tested idea if you're surrounded by yes people, right? Yeah, yes people are the worst. And the other thing too, (laughs) that was the biggest thing in Amex, and I hear this talked about a lot today, and I don't ever think it's in the right context, but one of the biggest things that Amex was big on is hiring people that are smarter than you. 
Mm. and letting them be smarter than you. And I know that from working at Amex, it was the most challenging, hardest thing for people to do across all levels of personnel. It is so hard to hire someone, champion them, and then actually let them be bigger and better than you and even move on into bigger and better things sometimes. And I would say that it is the most basic primal instinct for someone to want to be the alpha chimp in the group. You have to really work hard against that and understand why it's for the better that you really hire people that are great and let them be great in their jobs. That takes an evolved human to do that. Oh, it's hard. The one way that I have tried to frame it in my own head is to think about legacy and thinking about how like there was an editor at Elle magazine who was not my boss, but who was the boss of many people. And she was very, very tough. But if you made it through working with her for any length of time, everyone went on to these great other positions at other magazines. And it was sort of well known that like, if you could last, that you had the right stuff, like Mm -hmm. that you were a certain talent and had a certain level of dedication. What a wonderful legacy to have if like everyone who comes out of your company or everyone who comes out of your department goes on to really amazing things. That says something great about your ability as a boss to pick, to nurture all of that stuff. So it should be something that fills you up instead of something that makes you feel competitive or depleted. Yeah. And I mean, that's very true. And human instinct is the opposite by and large. (laughs) So (laughs) everyone has to work hard at it. You know, it really is important in a boss employee relationship that both sides speak up, but it's really critical that the boss makes sure that the employee knows that they can speak up. That there's space for them. Yeah. So speaking of personal relationships, I read that you met your husband while at Amex. Tell me about that. Yeah, he he was on the international side of Amex. He was an expat for Amex for, I think, like 20 years all over the world. And I met him when he was doing a stint in New York. And we just started dating. And right after we got married, he got transferred to Hong Kong. And I would have been reporting to him had I stayed with the company. And while no one mind that we dated, I certainly couldn't go and report to him. So I left. And that is, you know, when I decided that we were going to go out there, and I might as well just do everything new and start my own company. So let's talk about that. I mean, obviously, you are a very entrepreneurial person by nature. You had been doing it as a kid. How long had there been the seeds of like, maybe now is the time to start my own thing? And how did you sort of figure out what type of company you wanted to start? Well, it kind of um, came together for me when I was getting married and someone had said, okay, if you want some things to wear on your honeymoon, whatever, you should go and see this woman. She has an apartment on the Upper East Side and you go to her and she'll have certain styles of clothing and then fabric and you can choose the styles and then she'll make them up in whatever fabric you choose and it's really cool. And then you come back a week later and they're all ready for you. And I was like, this is cool. And I went and she was like in her, you know, late twenties, whatever. And I went there and I was like, oh man, like the styles were shitty and the fabric was shitty. And I was like, why can't these be good styles and why can't the fabric be good? So that always stayed in the back of my head that I was like, why isn't something better here? (laughs) And so when Frank said, you know, I've 
been offered this position in Hong Kong and I kind of got my head wrapped around it. I was like, you know what, this is where I can start my business. And so before we left, I had a sketchbook out and I had this idea of doing like six pieces of clothing. I had all these tear sheets of Calvin Klein, Donna Karen, Helmut Lang at the time. And I was like, I'm going to make it really clean and minimal. And then I'm going to find all these beautiful fabrics. And I had pieces that I had bought from Armani and Calvin Klein. And I was going to use like all these Italian fabrics. And I was going to find a way to like maybe set up a company in our house out there and let people buy these things that I would get made. So that was the original concept. And when I landed in Hong Kong, I remember Frank was actually out of town the first week because he had gone out a month before me to get things kind of settled. And we were staying at the Conrad Hotel and I checked in and the next day I opened up the yellow pages and I found a headhunter and I sent a fax to them saying that I was looking for a pattern maker and a factory and could they find one for me. And literally within 10 minutes, they had sent me the names of a guys called Benny and a guy named Ivan. Those were their American names, but it turned out they were two young Chinese guys in their 20s. I'm in my 20s. And so I went out to go see them on that second day and I brought to them my sketches. And on the way out there, I had found where fabric stores were and I found literally just happened upon the garment district and found there was a mill called Zabetti from Italy who we still use to this day. And I bought some yardage from them and took it out to Benny and Ivan and gave it to them. And they immediately, you know, gave me pricing. I was all ready to have memos and confirmations and meeting notes. And they were like, no, here's how much. And you come back tomorrow and you get it. And I was like, oh, that's so cool and fast. And the next morning I had again, gone through the yellow pages and there was a thing called the American Women's Association and I called them and they're like, oh, yeah, we are a group of American expats. And if you want to come, our first meeting, like we have a meeting today at like 12 o'clock. So I was like, cool, I'll go. And I went to that meeting and everyone was introducing themselves. And this woman came up to me and by woman, I mean like a 22 year old in a pair of shorts and the sneakers. And she was like, oh, my God, you said you're from Georgia. And my fiance went to the University of Georgia and he was in a band there and it was called All Good. And I was like, that band used to play all the time. I would go see them. And Corky <laughs> Jones was her fiance and I knew him. And so I was like, this is a crazy small world. And she said, well, what are you doing after the meeting today? And I said, well, I started a company yesterday <laughs> and I'm going to pick up the samples. And she said, can I just come with you? Because... She was just basically hanging out in Hong Kong. They had moved out there on a whim because that was the way she did things. And I was like, sure. And on the drive out to Benny and Ivan's place, we started talking about how, you know, there was this resurgence of Lily Pulitzer at the time. So this is mm. 1997. Lily's just come back on the scene. And she was telling me that having lived in Hong Kong, there was nothing like all cotton, easy clothing to wear. And she had grown up going to Nantucket. I grew up, obviously, on St. Simon's Island, where Lily was huge when I was growing up. And she said, oh, I saw these batik fabrics. Maybe there's some things that we could make up in batik fabrics. And before I knew it, we had started line number two 
between like the American Women's Association and going out to pick up my new styles. And so that was Tibby. That was her grandmother's name. And she and I partnered up and we got on the phone and called the consulate of Indonesia and got the names of all these boutique suppliers. And we flew to Jakarta. And I remember we had like 12 meetings set up with different printing factories. And we were in the Shangri-La hotel and we were there for like eight hours and not one meeting showed up. And then finally our last meeting, this woman walked in with her husband and she came up and she said, are you Amy and Octavia? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, you know, I'm Prairie. This is my husband, Zen. And I said, you know, what's going on? Like we were here for eight hours and not one appointment showed up. And she said, well, to be honest, we were looking for two men from Hong Kong named Amy and Octavia. But she said, I kind of got this suspicious that maybe these are female names and maybe you are Americans. And I was like, oh, there you wow. go. So... We got in the car with them and we checked out of the hotel because they said, come to Solo, Indonesia with us and come see the mill and you can stay at our house that is on top of all these rice patties. They had a little house and we did, which I can't even believe, like what in the hell, you know, we jump into the back seat and went to Solo and made fabric for the next few days and ate at the local pizza hut. So how does that turn into actually creating like the first collection? Well, Octavia and I divided things up. She got two styles. I got two styles and we split one. So we each got a dress and a skirt and then we split the pair of pants. We agreed completely on the pants style and we made up all these batik fabrics. And what we wanted to do is kind of lean into the whole Indonesian spirit of the batiks, but we did them in very bright colors because like I said Lily was coming back and the mood was for things very bright and strong and that was really new to the printing mill in Indonesia because the batik cloths were usually used for religious purposes and they were usually used in burgundies and browns and very dark colorways so to be doing all of these in these super bright colors was very different for them. And so we made up these fabrics. And I remember we took them all back to Benny and Ivan. And everything was like in these five yard swatches. And they were like, Oh, my God, like we brought them the fabric in trash bags. They're like, you know, fabric should be on a roll. (laughs) And I was like, you know, that makes sense. But you know, I was like, this is what we have. And so we ordered all of these items to be made up in the mini skirt and a midi skirt and the two dresses and the pants. And I didn't think it was a ton. I ordered 400 per style, but now I know that was a ton. Even today, that was a ton. But we wanted to impress Benny and Ivan. I don't know why. But it also was not expensive. And the math seemed to work out. We knew what our break-even point was. So everything got sewn up. And we had a party at my house in Hong Kong. And for weeks, Octavia and I would go out to bars and to coffee shops and try and pick up women. And we did everything to meet all these expats. And especially tapping into, like, there was a whole Dutch expat group And they were like golden because they were way too tall for the clothing in Hong Kong. So they were like prime. And so we did like $10,000 in our first little, you know, event at my house. 
And then those expats wore the clothing back home to the U.S. or back home to London, and they would walk around Harvey Nichols, and someone would compliment them. And so then buyers would kind of track us down. And I had also, coming from an advertising background, had really kind of pushed the PR side, and we had a really big article in the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And that's when Sarah Rutson, her last big thing was a really huge position at Net-A-Porter, but prior to that, she was Elaine Crawford, and she called me up, and she was like, darling, you know, we have to carry this line, and and so they did. So Elaine Crawford was my first account, and it was a really big one. So then I was like, you know, maybe this will sell in the U.S., and so Octavia and I jumped on an airplane, and we loaded up two gigantic suitcases filled with clothing, and we went to New York, and we actually got to New York, took the train to Boston, and then went from Boston all the way down to St. Simons Island, Georgia. And we signed on 13 accounts, and one of those was Neiman Marcus. Wow. And we just did that by walking in, like literally knocking on doors and walking in. And they would say things like, this is not how it's done. I remember Neiman Marcus was like, no, you do not just show up. And I was like, well, we're in town from Hong Kong, so this is the way it has to be done. And I think coming from Amex and Ogilvy, I was just used to doors open. And it didn't really dawn on me that, of course, like Tibby, who gives a shit? But, you know, if you kind of act like people should open the door, it's funny. They actually do. Yeah. So we signed on 13 accounts and we got back to Hong Kong. And I was like, well, now I have to ship this stuff. And so I called my mom, who was a school teacher, and I said, you know, I have to ship 4,000 pieces of clothing home because I got to have a point of entry and then I need you to pack everything up and send it out to all these stores and invoice them and collect the money. And, you know, she's my mom. So she was like, okay, I love you. <laughs> Until like a gigantic <laughs> container showed up in their front yard and knocked down half of a tree. And oh my goodness. Know, then fast forward, eventually I get her a garage. Eventually she quits her job at the high school and runs the warehouse and now it's a 20,000 square foot shipping facility in the area. I mean, that's amazing. At what point did you decide, okay, I think it's time to come back to the U.S. to deal with this? Or did you just want to keep going from Hong Kong? Well, first Octavia, like after the first shipments and then like Neiman's calling and saying like, I need to return something. She was like, oh, peace out. This is not fun anymore. I don't, you know, I want to go to Indonesia. I don't want to like do returns. So Octavia left. I kept the name. It was totally amicable. And I was like, I need to hire a salesperson. And so I didn't even know about showrooms or anything. So I hired a salesperson and it was just hard doing it back and forth, you know, and then Sarah Rodson, she was like, you need to do this thing called the Coterie. And I got into the Coterie. And so I remember I came to New York and I had a new collection that I had done. And I got an article in Women's Wear Daily right before the Coterie. And we had, you know, a nice business. I think I did like 150000 at that show. And then I came back and I found out I was pregnant. And so my husband subsequently, like, about a year into our living in Hong Kong, he had moved and was running Gateway Computers for Asia. And Gateway, when I got pregnant, Gateway was literally imploding. And so we were like, you know what? Why don't we jump ship? Why don't you join me? We knew that doing everything ourselves would be the most advantageous way to run the business. Mm -hmm. But if I had to do it on my own without him, it meant that I would probably be outsourcing the shipping and all this kind of stuff. So 
by working with my husband, we realized that we could really do everything full circle ourselves. And so we moved back. His parents were in their late seventies and he was an only child who had waited forever to get married. So they were ecstatic to have a grandkid and it just made sense to come home for family reasons, for business reasons. It was time. And so we came back and really kind of just grew the business in, you know, a quite slow, pragmatic way. And we did have like those big watershed moments. I remember I opened up the New York Times in September of 2000 and Bill Cunningham had done the entire page in the Sunday style section was all of Tibby. And he didn't know it was all Tibby. He was talking about a scarf print trend. He didn't realize it was all one designer. Wow. And so that was really cool. You know, that was right in the middle of Fashion Week. So then the Coterie had to limit the number of people near our booth. It was creating a fire hazard. Ah. And we did like $385,000 worth of sales at that market. And that was just really great. That is an amazing return to America. Yeah, it was good. And we moved into 56 Crosby Street. And it was good. It was crazy. It was stressful. And we worked 24-7, literally. And then 9-11 happened. And... Then 08 happened. But you managed to sort of avoid some of those like really massive widespread layoffs that so many other brands were facing at that moment in time, right? We were never bloated. (laughs) That helps. (laughs) We never had that big of a cash windfall to get bloated. You know, a lot of times you hear about designers when they get an investor and then they go on like a hiring spree and everything. Mm -hmm. And So we never really did that. And being privately owned, never outsourcing anything, we had a lot of control, you know, so we could expand and contract as we needed to. And you all were doing quite well, too. In my research, I read that in 2010, Tibby generated $22.4 million in sales. So Mm -hmm. this is a well-established, successful brand. And then you decided to make some rather drastic changes. So tell me about the impetus behind that refocusing and changing of the brand. Well, I think that if you've been around long enough, and then if you take a moment in time and you hone in on what is appealing to a group of people and you are hitting it at the right trend time, and then every department store buys it, you can hit that 22 million mark. You really can. You can sell enough stuff out there. The problem is, is that, is it going to stick? And are you going to be around the next year? Is that trend going to be around or does the trend move on? And then do you die with it? And so what happened is, you know, we were in a position where we were doing okay. And we thought, let's go to a headhunter. We're going to hire like the heavy hitter head of sales. And we hired her and she came in and she was like, this is going to be about these prints and we're going to really lean into all the shit that I hated. She was like, let's just lean into this and this is why it makes sense. And, you know, I was kind of like drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, Vince had just like exploded onto the scene in a much bigger way than they were when they had first started. And, you know, there were all these rumors, like maybe Rebecca Taylor's going to get bought, Nanella Poor. And I was like, I want some of that. And so it became more about that game rather mm-hmm. than any reason why I got into it to begin with. 
you know, like if you go back to when I said the Lily Pulitzer thing was happening, it wasn't studied that there was a Lily Pulitzer trend happening. It was more that like it was something that I was really craving. And when we did all those bright prints, we put them out there. And that's when all of a sudden Michael Kors did his like acid Lily on the runway and Gucci did the crazy 99 Lily. And so we were always part of whatever was going on because we were like in the zeitgeist. We weren't studying it. We were just part of it. So what happened then around 2010 was everything became much more studied. Mm -hmm. And so when you are studied, that means that you are losing the feel for something. And so then people were really like Nordstrom, Saks, Neiman's, like leaning into us for these placement print dresses. And we were doing tons of it. And then I remember the next year they came in and they were like, well, prints are dead. What do you have? And I'm like, oh, Oof. And so I was like, wait, how did I become the printed brand? I don't even like prints. Like, I like them if I like them. But when I don't like them, I don't like them. And mostly I don't like them. And by the way, your original references are not exactly print brands. No. And through all of this, I've hired Tracy now in 2007. And she she had come from Donna Karen. And Tracy was a total clean minimalist. And every time we were doing these prints, she was like, ugh. It was not anything that we wanted to wear. It wasn't your personal aesthetic. No, not at all. And editors would come even out to my house. And right when they would start to take the picture, I would have to go put on like, we would call it my Tibby costume. And it really got very confusing. And so I remember when Net-A-Porter came on the scene. And I think that was Holly Rogers was there at mm. the time. And... I remember Holly just pulled me aside and she said, you know, I want to buy what you're wearing and I don't want to buy what I see on the racks. Why aren't you connecting you with what's in your line? That's some of that direct feedback that you appreciate. Exactly. So I remember when Holly said that, you know, I went into Tracy and I was like, you know, the writing's on the wall. Like the store's already telling us that prints are dead and that we are their printed resource. So like do the math. And I was like, Let's just make the line that we want because I was hating what we were doing. And I was hating coming into the office and having my office filled with these prints. And so we packaged up prints and we packaged up five of our best selling styles. And we were like, why don't we give this another name and keep selling it? But let's hire a new salesperson. Let's put it in the garment district. Let's completely disassociate it from ourselves. Let's let the stores know that we're behind it so they know that it fits and that it ships. And so that's what we did. And we called it Four Collective and we put it in the garment district and we let it live for about three years. And it did like three million, then five million, then four million. And I remember in the third year, the head of sales, she was like, you know, I need a whole team and people are looking for embellishment now. And I'm like, no. And we killed it so that the. So that Tibby could live. You know, exactly. Tibby then was, you know, really surviving with the new style. And so we felt a little more empowered to really do what we want. And now after COVID and really cleaning house in terms of who we sell to, it's just crystal clear. I mean, we only make what we want. There is no compromise at all. So I think that it's both really brave and also really smart the way that you did this, because to make such a pivot and for a brand to become something totally different 
is terrifying in some ways because you are going to alienate, in theory, your entire customer base, but you were hedging your bets with it, with Four Collective, so you're being smart about that risk. I mean, it's just so daring and cool. I love it. But the thing is, in business, who's to say whether Pringles chips are better than like, you know, $40 truffle chips? Like, there's a market for everyone, you know? Totally. So who's to say even what is good fashion or bad fashion? The, the whole thing is, do you know what you are? And so if you don't know what you are and if you're not clear about that, then other people can't find you. And that is just the way that it is. So we really learned that along the way. So it wasn't a matter of whether or not it was good fashion. I mean, who, like all these reviewers, you know, they'll have a million different opinions. There's really no consensus And so given that you know that, then you might as well really be very clear about what you're going to stand for. Also, I think there's another piece of this, too, which is like I'll speak from my own personal experience. I was a Tibby customer back in the day, and I'm still a Tibby customer. So to think that just because you change that you're not going to appeal even to the same person, like we all evolve, everyone changes you can still have that same customer base. It can expand, it can change, it can be different. But, you know, I think that sometimes people get very black and white about like, well, if you do this, then this person will have this reaction. It's like, you don't know what the reaction is going to be until you actually get out there and test it, which you did and proved the concept. It's true. And I think one of the reasons why it's particularly worked now in the last 16 months is that the conversation before was always like, you're going to go from a printed customer to a non-printed customer, or you're going to go from an embellished customer to a non-embellished customer. And I think once we really peeled back that it wasn't about whether someone wanted prints or embellishment, it was more about, you know, do they have a modern mindset? Do they like things that are refined and slightly classic? And, you know, is ease really important to them, like how important is utility and ease of what they're wearing. And so once we were able to really define our customer as this creative pragmatist who had this balance of creativity and pragmatism, who everything she wore or he wore had to be chill and modern and classic at the same time, that released us completely. And it allowed us to you know, I could do embellishment, I could do prints as long as it was chill, modern and classic, because it appealed to a person who appreciates things that are chill, modern and classic. That's freeing. And so when you realize that, then that person evolves with time, because that is the definition of modernity is you are constantly looking forward. Yes. So you will evolve, (laughs) you will change. And we'll be there for that, because we are modern people who will change. And I'm not ever going to come in looking like Roberta Cavalli or anything like that, but I wouldn't because that's not chill, modern, or classic to me. Right. We talked a little bit about the boutique business that you were doing before. Around this time, you started getting really heavily into e-commerce, which obviously is a different way of operating. What was that process like for you and for the brand? E-commerce was amazing and mostly because if I went back and looked at the number one thing that we did that I think was the smartest in the company, I think it was owning our own warehouse. Mm. And it allowed us to always have complete control. And it certainly saved our ass during COVID. And so what that meant is when we were exploring the idea of doing a website and e-commerce, 
we never outsourced it to another company. And I hear this all the time with young designers. They're like, well, I don't have the bandwidth and I don't have the mental capacity here to handle it. And so we're just going to outsource it. And then when it gets really big, we'll bring it in-house. And the time to do things in-house is when you get an order for one pair of pants and you ship it. And then the next day you get an order for two shirts and a pair of pants and you ship it. And each day you get a little bit more and more and it grows, you know, because no one's going to turn on their website tomorrow and have $10,000 worth of orders. That is not going to happen to you. And by the way, that's what these third party people convince you because they come in and they're like, well, you'll hit a million dollars in sales. And I'm like, when? Like in year two, and now I've had 700 days of non-million dollar sales. So I'd rather be learning all those days and keeping my data and keeping my information I've learned than outsourcing it. And then what? Like now I'm a $10 million business and I try and bring it in-house. Like how the hell do you bring in a $10 million e-commerce business with absolutely no learning at all? Right. So... You know, you need to look at the realities of where you are and what can you take on and can you really learn from it? And that's what we did with e-commerce in the warehouse. And that's been a godsend to us for sure. Totally. So let's talk about the pandemic a little bit. You decided to shrink your production calendar. Obviously, you made a bunch of smart choices during this time that continues, unfortunately. What have been some of your greatest learnings from the last year and a half? I think the greatest learning is just to ask the question more about why you're doing things the way that you're doing it. And I think that the whole industry was just in this rat race where we were all doing things because we just thought that it was the way that it was supposed to be done. And you know, we just started asking, well, wait, why are we making ourselves crazy? You know, and it just allowed so much more flexibility. So the question why comes up so often now. And then if you don't have a good answer, then we tend not to react. You know, if sales comes in and says, we have to open the collection on this date. And I'm like, why? You know, if the answer was, because that's how we did it last year, that means nothing anymore, you know, especially like around runway for September, for a hot minute, we were like, we should do a show. We're in the mood to do a show. And then we were all like, why? We couldn't answer the why yet. <laughs> you know, maybe next year we will be able to. But right now we definitely couldn't. It's so hard, though, to make those decisions. I mean, obviously you are. But like when there's just been this way of doing things and, you know, to really like examine that, I feel like we all still have that knee jerk reaction of like, we should do this to actually have the time and the confidence to ask why and make a decision from there is, I mean, it's everything. Well, especially now, like, especially for young designers, if you've had a business and you've grown up with really in-depth knowledge of social media, just by way of who you are and, you know, your age and everything. And if you've grown up in this new way of doing things, why are you putting so much stock in maybe what other people are telling you is the right thing to do? You know, why these <laughs> mentors get assigned to people? Like, do you want to be events? Like, if you don't want to be events, then don't be listening to people who, you know, pushing forward that proposition. I think that's one of the toughest things as a designer is when you finally get invited to the table with you know, some big investors or some people from the CFDA that are like these big minds in the industry, 
you're just so happy to be invited. And then sometimes you're like, wait a minute, maybe I know more than they do in a lot of areas right now yep. that are really important. And maybe I should be leaning into that. And you can take what they say, but you take it with a grain of salt. It's just one piece of data, just one input. For sure. So on this podcast, we like to talk about how the skills from our first lives are almost always incredibly valuable in our second lives. So I'm hoping you can tell me about some of the things from your marketing advertising life that you still use on a daily basis. Well, for sure, I use the financial skill set that I learned. And that was one of the things when I first started the company, every single interviewer would start off and say, how did you start a company without a background in fashion? And I really just started to answer, how in the hell would you start a company with a background in fashion? Like, it is a company at the end of the day. And so I really think that having experience just simply in numbers, the ability to work with them, to do a spreadsheet, to understand profitability, to understand what is not profitable, to understand that working with no margin or profit cannot lead to anything unless you're Amazon and can operate that way for years and years. But in the real world, for real people out there, you really do have to make money in order to stay alive. And so knowing your numbers is really, really critical. And then, you know, I learned a lot from just Ogilvy and working for great people and David Ogilvy was always so big on his quote was, the consumer isn't a moron, she's your wife. And of course, like that's very dated. <laughs> but I think the premise of it is really rock solid. And so, you know, when I think about my own business, when you would have these department stores come in and even catch my creative team saying things like, we hate it, but she'll wear it, she'll love it. I think that was one of the biggest thing is treating our customers with respect that they actually are smart. They do want to dress well. They do want to dress modern. We're going to talk to them with a lot of respect in that way. We're not going to dumb it down. I really appreciate that. And I think the customer does too. So yeah, that's what I've learned. We also like to talk about mistakes on this podcast because everyone makes them and people don't talk about them. And we just look at everyone's highlight reel on Instagram and that's nonsense. So I'm hoping that you can tell me about a mistake that you've made in your career and what you've learned from it. First of all, I've made so many. I don't even know where to start, but I think that a few of them are number one, the idea that hope is not a strategy. And, you know, <laughs> I would see something bad at the factory and I'd be like, I hope that these pants aren't all messed up. But the reality is like, you can't hope it. You need to pull them off the line. You need to measure them all. You need to check it. And I would just hope and then I would be wrong and it would suck. And I also coming from an advertising background and from Amex, you learn to listen to your customer and that's a mistake in this industry to a certain extent. If modernity is your cornerstone, why would you go out and ask someone what they want? You need to make sure that you know what you want and you package it right and you surprise them with it. So don't ask too many questions if you're in an industry that really requires you having a point of view and being able to formulate that and that consistency behind that. Because if you have too many people in your ear, you're going to be all over the place. A lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are in their first life. They want to make a pivot like you did, but they're scared or uncertain, or they just haven't figured out how to do it yet. What advice would you give someone who is ready to start their second life, but just hasn't done it quite yet? 
I think it would be helpful to really, if you feel like you're knowing what you want to do, that you make sure that your passion for what you want to do extends beyond just the surface of it. So I knew that I love clothing so much. And so, of course, I wanted to do something with clothing, but I also loved advertising, marketing, finance, business, like working hard, all the other aspects of it. And if I just loved the clothing, this would not have ended well at all. And so I think you have to really kind of take measure of what is required of you in the next phase of your life, you know, and what you're up against. And I think that, like I said, I don't believe that there's one right way of doing anything, you know, who's to say even who's a great painter, artist, whatever. But I think knowing who you are and what you're doing is the only way for you to really be able to defend it and to be able to defend it is to be able to market it. And if you can't market it, it's not really a business. I love that. So my last question, and then I'll let you go, is also my favorite, which is if you could go back in time and speak with a younger Amy at any point in her career and give her some advice, what would you say? You know, everything happens for a reason, I believe. And so I would just go back and tell myself that it's all going to work out. Just keep going with the flow that any anxiety that you have, if going with the flow won't work out, I would go back and tell myself, don't worry, it does. It works out in a really good way. Well, Amy, thank you. This was so incredible as a longtime customer of yours through many iterations of your collection, my life, everything. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. That was the founder and creative director of Tibby, Amy Smilovic. For more inspiring interviews with women like Amy, head on over to secondlifepod.com, where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We always want to know who you'd like to hear from on the show. So send in your request to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show's at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr and you've been listening to Second Life. Thank you to Saxaw Fifth for sponsoring today's episode. Saxaw Fifth brings you Sax Style for Less up to 70% off full price. With amazing designer brands like Ghani, Stodd, and Stuart Weitzman, whether you're shopping for fresh, back-to-the-office looks, for that perfect piece for a special occasion, or to update your wardrobe for the new season with favorite staples, Saks Off Fifth has you covered from head to toe. We're talking clothes, shoes, handbags, beauty, and more for both women and men, with new styles arriving daily. Experience the thrill of an amazing designer find at saxoffifth.com or at a store near you.